0: I really like um, the concept of the bass. It's, its function in Western music is to be that mortar between the bricks. You know you're the bridge between the harmonic and the rhythmic elements of an ensemble. And there's a lot of strength there. There's a lot of uh, uh, sort of leading from from behind, you know, leading from the shadows, being someone you can be leaned upon to help build a great foundation for other people to do stuff. I like that role. I don't really need the spotlight.
1: Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm Joe McHugh, and in this two-part podcast, I will be talking with bassist Jeff Harshbarger, who hails from Lawrence, Kansas, home to the University of Kansas. I first heard Jeff play his bass as a member of the Purna Loka Quartet that included Purna Pregnau Banjare, an Indian classical violinist, David Krishnan, an American-born violinist and composer, and Amit Cowtaker, a master on the Indian drums, the tabla. The concert was held at the Lawrence Arts Center and was titled East Meets West. I traveled to Lawrence in the spring of 2017 to interview Porna and David, who had just completed a month-long collaboration on a composition that drew upon both Indian and Western musical forms. But I was so impressed with Jeff's artistry on the bass, that I asked him if we might have a conversation about his relationship with this unique instrument, an instrument that has remained somewhat of a mystery to me.
0: My name is Jeff Harshbarger. Uh, we're in the beautiful KPR studios in Lawrence, Kansas, on the University of Kansas campus. I got my start, uh, my, my parents are both music teachers. My father's a, a high school band teacher, my mom's a grade school music teacher, and they're trained, uh, he's a jazz musician, woodwind specialist, and she's an opera singer. Whereabouts? Uh, we grew up, I grew up in Manhattan, Kansas, uh, and that's where the beginning of my music started. They put a violin in my hand when I was four, and uh, Suzuki trained. His best friend was the uh, orchestra teacher, so they started me uh, pretty young uh, on that and the piano. And I got a saxophone when I was ten, and an upright bass when I uh, electric bass when I was ten, upright when I was eleven, and just public schools uh, that kind of business. But also um, subbed into my father's band and a couple other bands in the area when I was ten, uh, just playing jazz standards gigs not because i was any good but because in manhattan kansas there was only a couple other guys that could hold a base and when they couldn't do it and one of them was a volunteer fireman so he'd have to leave you know pretty quickly sometimes and so the call would come in can you let jeff out the house mike's got to go put a building out you know and he can't make the gig tonight and so my father having played his way through school as a youngster uh, you know trusted these fellas and you know how much trouble can you get into in the in rural uh, kansas you know mid- middle of the state and there's not a whole lot of squirrely stuff going on so i got fortunate to play with people way way better than me when i was a very young age and i learned a lot i learned most of my standards then and just learned about getting the job done and staying out of the way and <laughs> being supportive
1: so you uh had this uh the first was the introduction of really playing the instrument was the violin. Yeah. But you gravitated to the bass. Was this because everyone needed a bassist, or you, you have the nature of a bassist?
0: Um, it's because my dad made me play the bass. <laughs> <laughs> to be totally honest, his, his friend the orchestra teacher? says, you know, your kid is actually really large for his age, uh, and I have a quarter size bass in our locker that I've never been able to use. So if we if he felt like switching, I could actually have a bass player in my grade school orchestra. And and by the time he got home that afternoon, he said, "So you're going to start playing bass tomorrow?" And I I said, "Well, okay, you know, because you just did what your parents told you to do." And I ended up being okay at it. I ended up really liking it, and gained a, a certain amount of respect on it. That keeps a young man, you know, going. You know, you become known for being good at something. So that was the sort of the in I had to my social network. And so I stuck with it. And, just kind of said yes to everything. I, I played in all the school groups and, and was really active in the theater and really active in uh, acting outside of school. But eventually uh, did a lot of singing too, but eventually just gravitated towards being a bass player. And now later in life I've reintroduced singing back into what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. It just seems like the natural progression to get back to it.
1: Yeah, there's a couple uh very popular singers, vocalists, who play bass simultaneously. Oh, yeah. You know, yes. I
0: was a typical child of the 80s, you know, I listened to all the stuff that was on the radio, really loved uh, The Police, you know, looked at, looked up to Sting, uh, looked up to Getty Lee because those were people that could sing interesting things and they had a really strong melodic sense while playing interesting, intricate bass lines. It, it was mystifying to me. I, I felt those lines were not your typical, you know, boom, 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 boom. There was much more going on and singing over that is really hard. Uh, I found that a, an intriguing challenge. I really enjoyed trying to do that. So uh, that was the focus for a while until I got into jazz. Um, someone gave me a, a kind of blue, that Miles Davis record, when I was 14, and that sort of changed everything. Uh, that was watershed moment.
1: Can you tell me why?
0: I had never heard anything like it. Um, my father was really interested in Dixieland and trad jazz and Stan Getz and Phil Woods is about as modern as he got. And my mother listened to, uh, Verdi and, and, uh, light opera and Barbra Streisand, those kind of things. So that was the soundtrack of my, my early childhood. Uh, and then, you know, you discover the radio and your friends are into what they're into when you're a young person. That record, nothing, nothing had ever sounded like that. I didn't, I didn't know... Music could be that way, and it was so. It, it seemed fragile and and impassable at the same time. It it seemed to have everything in it, and such ind- distinct voices throughout that record. You know, people playing extremely melodically and very simply, and then some people playing extremely complicatedly over really simple ideas. Uh, and just the sound of it, just how the bass and the drums work together as like a single unit just like a, a single voice like two people sharing an idea at all times really love that
1: and this uh, relationship between percussion and the bass um, talk about that a little bit
0: that's it's the key i i think i think we're all drummers with notes you know at the end of the day you know it's the earliest instrument we're all singers and we're all drummers in our hearts and souls and how we choose to manifest that is just different by our our tastes. But as long as we have that in mind it's, it's hard to go wrong, you know, it's hard to stray from your true music. So I really like um, the concept of the bass. It's, its function in Western music is to be that mortar between the bricks. You know, you're the bridge between the harmonic and the rhythmic elements of an ensemble. And there's a lot of strength there. There's a lot of uh, uh, sort of leading from from behind, you know, leading from the shadows, being someone you can be leaned upon to help build a great foundation for other people to do stuff. I like that role. I don't really need the spotlight. Uh, don't mind it if it comes my way, but I don't need to live there. I, I would have chosen a different instrument if I did. I, I like to be part of a larger collective uh, to, to make a... Have a group think moment to be collaborative. That's important to me.
1: I play what they call old time music, Southern Appalachian string music. Yeah, and often you're at a festival and you're playing, and you got a good guitarist with you, and banjo, mm. which is closer has that percussive element. Absolutely, that's that's the uh, drum with the notes, and uh, you're, you've got this groove going, and you're really enjoying it. And often you won't even notice because there's a lot of people. You're outdoors. Might it be night. Mm-hmm. and suddenly there's somebody with a stand-up bass that just showed up, and they put the floor under you. Yeah. And it's like the thing is a whole new dimension. You just go into another place altogether, yeah. and everybody feels it, and it's it's electric.
0: Yeah, it's just this big, beautiful, doughy, like, oomph. Yeah, <laughs> it, 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 it's just it's an amazing feeling. You yeah. know, playing the instrument's amazing, too. It, it's, it's such a big, resonant box, and it, and it resonates with you once you learn how to dance with it a little bit and to, to be to not choke the box from vibrating it's, it's such a large cavity when you figure out how to make it you know sing on its own
1: tell us uh, a little bit more about that just as if you were talking to somebody who's who starting on this uh, this idea i love of letting the box vibrate and not choking it how would you choke it with literally your body against it
0: yeah uh, if you just lay uh, you know if you just some people will play it to the side, uh, especially if you're mostly playing pizzicato. Uh, so you've got your the side, the right rib laying against your belly. And that's actually destroying vibration. You know, the box isn't going to make as much sound because you're choking it off. Or um, sometimes you, know, you can even hold it perfectly away from you, but you're putting too much weight down on it. You, there's a lot of ways you can influence the tone of the instrument just by how you hold it. And I don't want to say that's bad. I think those are valid choices. You know, uh, Frequently, depending on the kind of music I play, I will turn the instrument and I will lay it against my belly so I can get a more choked, thuddy sound because mm-hmm. uh, it, it would be appropriate for the thing that I'm doing. But, um, but otherwise, if I, if I want to have some really singing Arco melodies, you've got to turn the instrument. You've got to have it so that all the flat surfaces can vibrate on their own. I think that's really important. And I think trying to have your instrument set up so that it's free to vibrate, like removing as much excess material from the instrument as possible, uh, it's made a big difference on my bass. I've I've noticed it. Uh, Changing my tailpiece to something that's a little more standard than what was on it originally, uh, removing... Cables and, and replacing it with leather I've gone back and forth to all these things I've tried lots of different kinds of strings and just to see what the bass wants to do It's an old instrument, you know, it's a, it's a 19th century instrument. So the one you're playing. Yeah,
1: tell me about that instrument a little bit
0: um, I, uh, the, It's we don't know who made it which is probably the reason why I can afford it <laughs> being as old as it is we guess uh, The fellow I bought it from he thinks it's an 1870s uh, thereabout. about uh, German flatback and uh, it's it's just warm and round and honestly I had it's the first old instrument I've ever owned and I always wanted an old instrument I just gravitated towards that sound I don't think there's anything like it but I'd owned it for less than a month and it was decapitated by a drunk in a in a bar oh. the guy didn't see it he kicked it across the room and he was a very smart drunk he ran very quickly uh, once I heard the big sound he was really nowhere to be found. So that was pretty heartbreaking. It had a very thick neck on it. And um, I bought the bass because it just had that, it just had that huge bottom end, that huge sound. And I made a mistake when I had it rebuilt. I was talked into a neck graft, which is a a very great repair. Uh, And the guys who did it did a great job. Uh, It's the original scroll, the original body, and and a new neck. And I just figured, well, let's just carve a good D-neck into it. I'm starting to travel more it's harder to take your own bass around the world. So I wanna get used to what's become a standard way of playing the bass, and, and I'll just take this opportunity to have my bass geared towards that, so I just I feel better all the time. And in retrospect, I should've just had the old neck replaced in on a pin job. It's not as sturdy of a repair, but I wouldn't have lost that sound. It doesn't do that anymore. It, it did that without any effort. Uh, I've had to rehabilitate the instrument to get close and it has a great sound now. Um, but it took me a couple of years to, to, uh, just get over the fact that I wasn't going to have the thing I bought it for, you know, it's a different sound than what I wanted, but it's fine. It's led me towards other kinds of music. I've been doing a lot more, um, interesting chamber music lately that that bass would not have been appropriate for with its old sound mm-hmm. and now that i've changed the string length and i've changed the gauge of the strings that i use it's a more versatile instrument uh, i used to have a, a single voice now i have a, a, a wider palette and so I'm, I'm thankful so so thank you mystery drunk for, yeah, wa- mystery for widening drunk. my palette yeah
1: yeah yeah <laughs> these weird interventions of fate in one way or another uh, can't you see yourself having two different bases for fundamentally different kinds
0: of music? I own three. Um, I have my old plywood bass that I have uh, that I grew up playing on. I've geared towards solo classical bass playing. Um, and it's very thin strings, very low action, and it's forcing me to be lighter. I've had to buy different bows. I've had to change how I hold it because I'm a, I'm a bit of a Cro-Magnon. I just kind of muscle my way through through playing, and so forcing myself to play an instrument like that for practice is, uh, man, that's a challenge. Just trying not to crush the string right into the fingerboard. I can't, I can't help it. <laughs> I just it, half the time the bass just goes clunk. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, I don't enjoy playing that instrument, but I work on it because it, it teaches me uh, a finesse that uh, it forces me into a finesse that the other instrument doesn't.
1: But you just use it for practice.
0: Yeah, I've I've used it for. I've used it for a couple of things, but it is a plywood instrument. It doesn't have the depth of tone that my main instrument does. So uh, I think I've relegated it to just being in the living room and helping me learn other things. Mm
1: -hmm. And what's the third instrument?
0: The The third instrument is uh, another, it's an older plywood that I bought uh, because uh, a mentor of mine learned on it and it came up for sale. Uh, He said, hey, I haven't played the bass in a couple of years. And it needs to go to a good home. So it's my it's my plywood uh, beater bass. If I don't want to take the nice one to a, a couple of bars that I play at, I'll take this one along. It's good to have a second bass around. If a friend comes in from out of town, uh, there's a nice instrument that I can loan somebody if if whatever they're presented with isn't good. And it was important to me to buy because uh, it was uh, Dennis Irwin's instrument when he got fresh out of college. And he's a very important person in my life. And his college roommate, um, this great trombone player, uh, Dave Glenn. He's the one who's had it for a long time. Uh, bass is his second instrument, and he just wasn't using it anymore. And so he said, you know, come, come get it. So it's kind of an honor for me to to have this instrument that one of my heroes learned on. So it's 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 got that juju in it, man. It's, it's got that thing.
1: Well, you brought up this subject of traveling, mm-hmm. and I have talked to other basis about this where often they can't travel with their base. Yeah. Or if they do it always gets broken. Yeah. Like like it's a rule of the universe. Yeah, yeah, No matter how you pack it, it's going to arrive on the other end with, with some problem. Yeah. Uh, so you're uh, when you tour, you're getting whatever is there on the other side and how do how do you figure out the base you're going to need? Have you been in that situation very often or do you usually just have your base?
0: Um it's about half and half. Uh, domestically, I get my base. You know, I'll figure out a way to travel that I can always use mine. But overseas, it's just become impossible. It's not worth it. And, and like you said, if I you know put it in the case and put it underneath the, in the plane, every time something has happened to it and the base hasn't, it doesn't do what I want it to do. When I you know it takes a few days for it to to reacclimate. I just there's no real time when you're traveling on the road to get that chunk of two or three hours to to get that base where you want it. So I've learned to deal with what's there. Uh, I do a lot of research and I'm thankful that I've got enough friends now that I know enough people in different towns that I can make a couple phone calls and, and say, hey do you know somebody in this town you know you're, you're a country over who do I cut in contact with if I'm going to be there in a couple months I'm going to need an instrument? Is, uh I'm paranoid enough that if it's a major festival they're always great it's always a good instrument I don't worry about it I just tell them my basic specs and, and it's a it's fun to play a different instrument because it's like it does a new thing it gives me new ideas and I'm playing a, a lot of improvisatory music so it helps me uh, have a new voice that night so I like it uh, but yeah every one out of every six or seven times you get a real dog and you just gotta Suck it up, man. <laughs> you well, you. Nobody
1: pays attention. Oh, no, man.
0: You just they go, Oh yeah, it's a bass, right? You get something that was in someone's basement for ages. Oh, the worst was one in Arkansas. It just it smelled like a cat box. It was so amazing. And it did it had three of four strings on it. And the, the action it was like you could you could drive a truck between the strings and the fingerboard. It was just amazing. What was the gig? Uh, it was this touring uh, this group I had uh, called Alaturka, it's a Turkish jazz ensemble, and so we were performing. We were performing for the governor and, and a bunch of people at the university, like a bunch of intellectuals. And it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a challenging gig. I'll say that. <laughs> I'm glad that's over. <laughs> but that's that's by far the worst, the worst bass I've seen. Yeah, Sometimes. this
1: is an interesting idea that there is a social imperative. If that's the right word to have this network of, of people. Yeah. So, I mean, we make friends for the sake of our affections and we like those friendships to be spontaneous and yeah. not manipulative. But, you know, a lot of people don't understand the nature of social capital anymore. Right. So you got to pay into the bank. Yeah. And it's not manipulative to no. be pleasant and good mannered with other people so that when you, in fact, need them, but then when they need you, you're there too for them. But yeah. it's, it's a, you know, I come from an Irish family and, and they were good politicians because there was a chit, you know, I think it was the word they used to use. Right. You know, like, well, you know, he owes me. Right. Even though I did it, I would have done it for him anyhow. But now right. I can call on him rather than go to somebody and just ask for something and you, you there's no money in that bank, in yeah. that social bank. So just a little bit about the... The camaraderie within the world of bassists—do they see themselves as their own clan, and uh, in a different way maybe than other people in the violin world? Maybe I'm fishing for that.
0: No, um, I, I think the, just the the trials of, uh, of what you have to deal with being a bass player, especially a traveling bass player, are, are so unique that we really bond over that. You know, whenever you go to a jazz convention or you go to the isb convention and you're hanging out with a bunch of bass players it doesn't take very long for you to start talking about all your travel horror stories because it's just common ground we all have them and everyone loves to hear the different flavor of it and it's all you know there's probably only four really only four or five stories but but how they happened is is the glory in telling those tales over drinks and when people are coming through your town uh, i I make it a point to to go to the gigs uh, uh, when there's players that i really love and i've generally i'm coming from another session anyway so the bass is already in the car so i'll just i don't leave it in the car i bring it in and i go backstage and and sometimes i've seen guys like really struggling and i'll just introduce myself and say hey i just came from my own session uh, you're I was coming to your show tonight. You're welcome to use my instrument if you want. And, and I've met some wonderful people that way, just by being, uh, by wanting to see a good show. Like I feel like I'm hurting myself if I've taken a night off of work to go see someone else play and I can't watch them play the way they want to because they're struggling with the equipment. And it's like, well, man, I know I've got a good instrument, so just take it. And I get to hear you kick ass as opposed to like not do the thing I know you can do. Like we're all in this together. We're all on the same team. Like that's that's the glory of it. And bass players, I, th- I think think that more so than most people, because you're usually only one of us on a gig, unless you're in the symphonic world. So we don't really get to see each other that often. You have to really go out of your way to hang out. So that camaraderie happens really quickly. And if you find a bass a fellow bass player that you get along with, there's guys I've met at a festival, you know, once that will chat up on social media we'll catch up on the phone once in a while but we've really only had one encounter face to face and i would consider them dear friends just because that it just happens that way it happens really quickly i think quicker than most and if you decide someone's just not someone you want to mess with you decide that pretty quick too and and you just move on and but but being helpful and understanding like what it is that we've got to do to have a good gig I run into more people that think that way than don't.
1: You're making me think for some reason of the book by Malcolm Gladwell called Blink. And the, uh, the book is basically about this ability human beings seem to have to size up someone in a very short amount of time. Yeah. The example he first gave was they showed a professor to these students that could either take his class or not take his class and then rate him. And they would show him... 30 seconds of this man teaching a class and mm. then they would rate. And then it turns out when they rated them later, the evaluated the professor turned out to be true Right, you know, that he was boring or he was exciting or she was whatever. Then they turned it, turned it, I think down to 10 seconds and they got it to like five seconds. So I mean, incredibly short amount of time Right. that apparently we can jump to a pretty accurate assessment of something. Yeah. And, uh, I'm wondering about it just went through my mind as we were talking the bass. You hear those first couple notes, and do you just like, know right away? Yeah, this guy knows or this woman knows what she's doing.
0: Yeah, I think so. Yeah. it's there's so much information in in one note on the bass that that you know right away. Yeah. There's so much going on. And it's yeah, it can be something as simple as someone just holding a single pitch and you know a lot about that person uh and you kind of know if you want to hang out with them or not <laughs> it's pretty, you know uh you, if you can tell if someone is a supportive musician they're probably someone that you can have a beer with and if someone is, is like only hot dogging all the time uh you can have a beer with them too but you're gonna hear their stories you're not gonna get any of your own out you know, that's fine too it's good you know there's a lot it takes all kinds of people to do this stuff and i've met very few people that i wouldn't share another beer with.
1: Well, this thing, and I don't know why i want to put this in at this point, just again, things that pop into your head in a conversation, which is what I like. I like sure. conversations. The fellow who was, uh, and I wish I could think of his name right now, the famous producer for the Beatles.
0: Uh, yeah, Martin.
1: Yeah, just passed away. Yeah. He had a story that he told to uh, um, Paul McCartney that Paul McCartney then related. Hmm. And what had happened was they were had just met him as musicians, the Beatles. And he brought him in and he was testing the range of their hearing, what frequencies they could hear. Huh. Turns out they have a remarkable hearing, all four of them. They could hear quite low and quite high in the spectrum. And then uh, Martin told a story where he said um, that Hitler and Goebbels particularly, who really understood these emerging technologies uh, and it's their relationship to political power, uh, they would, in these indoor gymnasiums, large places where Hitler was to give a talk, they would run a tone through the sound system that was just below human threshold for mm-hmm. hearing. But it's a tone be- that low that makes people feel quite, almost a little queasy and anxious, mm-hmm. although they don't hear it mm-hmm. a- with their ear or wouldn't know they do. Mm-hmm. Their body's obviously picking it up. And they would run this solid tone and just as soon as Hitler came out onto the podium, they cut it.
0: Oh wow! And
1: there would be this euphoria, this lifting of something that nobody even knew, and they would just feel better. And here's the great leader, and I feel better.
0: Wow! So I had I th- not heard that yet. Yeah,
1: that's an interesting story. So you know, and you're down there. You're right down at that low end. Oh yeah. Where this stuff's going on.
0: Yeah, there are there are times that you can really play with that. You know, I I play a lot of avant-garde uh, free music, and I'm I'm constantly thinking about. Um, what kind of emotional effect I can have on on what's happening. It's not necessarily about the notes that I'm playing, but it's about the sound I can generate. And by grinding away at the bottom end of the instrument and even detuning to get a little lower to pitches where, you know, the bottom of the bass is right about the the spot where humans have a hard time discerning pitch, depending on who you are and where you're from and how old you are. What's the
1: hertz? Is it 100 hertz?
0: I don't know. I think it's even lower. I think it's like 55 if I do the math real quick, my tuning A I use 220, and then the one below is 110. So yeah, it's got to be right around 65, 70, 55. Um, and in there, you know, I've done ear training studies with a lot of my students, and I've noticed if you just play f- mix fourths and fifths and go down the piano, right around the range when you're at the bottom of the bass is where people start making mistakes. Um, and people that have really great hearing and, and most bass players can get you know a, almost an octave below that because you're just used to being down there but hardly anybody else can like they just you get down to the bottom E and then they just get lost after it's just, it's just a it's just a rumble to them but it's really great to play with that and to use that uh against what other people are doing in an ensemble cuz i i can create an unease or a nausea or or a euphoria by you know relaxing that sound if if um and popping things up an octave really quickly it sort of lightens things up. If you pop things up too high, the bottom drops out, and that can create a lot of unease and a lot of tension.
1: Yeah, like the floor just went out from under them.
0: Yeah, it's like now now there's nothing to stand on. Now we're all up in the air together, You know, and it's a different kind of tension. It's a different kind of a conversation that starts happening amongst the musicians. You get really on point. That, you know, there's no longer a... I really like doing it to um, when certain people I play with get kind of stuck in their own. You can feel them stuck in their own head when they're soloing. They feel like they're soloing even though it's free improvisation, which is, in my mind, it better if we're all being really collaborative and if we're all like, trying to be like a flock of seagulls together. Once in a while, someone gets in their own head, and, and it's, it's great. They're having their moment. But then to help destroy that moment, I stop being a bass player. I get way up high on the instrument and remove that safety net for them. And instantly you feel the unease and the discomfort and you just, whoop, they snap their attention straight back to what everyone else is doing. It, 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 it grounds them without having any ground. Yeah. Not it's I'm super just, fun. I, I like kind to
1: say anything or give anybody a dirty look. You just do
0: it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's not, it's not a, it sounds like I'm making a power play, but for me, it's more like being Bugs Bunny. It's just being mischievous. It's like, oh, you think you're gonna have a big old solo now, do you? Bing! <laughs> it's like, now, do do it now. Now what's it sound like if you do the same thing? And to, to me, that's what free improv should be about. It should include a lot of playfulness. It should include a lot of uh, gamesmanship. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a it's much more fun, I think, for the listener and for the performer. hmm
1: Yeah, that's
0: fascinating. Yeah.
1: Here is a short segment of music from the concert I attended at the Lawrence Arts Center in Lawrence, Kansas, titled East Meets West. The second half of the concert began with Jeff playing a duet with David Balan Krishnan, violinist with the famed Turtle Island String Quartet. <laughs> That concludes part one of my conversation with Jeff. In part two, we talk about playing the bass using a bow and how playing for tango dancers helped Jeff develop a technique all his own. He also talks about a special teacher he met in France who has taught him how to avoid injury while fostering a spirit of curiosity. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project, and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. We wish to thank the University of Kansas School of Music for hosting our visit to Lawrence, Kansas, and to the good folks at Kansas Public Radio for allowing us to use their studios to record the interviews.